So this morning, we are continuing our series, Remembering the Faithful, which actually comes, as you already know, through the book of Hebrews. So the why of this class is to remember and imitate, to remember and imitate. So last week, Jeremy gave us a snapshot of the life, ministry, and legacy of William Wilberforce. And so this week, we're going to be doing the same exact thing, looking at the life, ministry, and legacy, a snapshot Not exhaustively, just a snapshot of J.C. Ryle. And here's why, as you can see at the screen behind me. Like the other brothers that we've talked about in this class, J.C. Ryle was a part of the faithful cloud of witnesses from the past that still speaks to believers in Christ in the present today. And if you think about that, that is absolutely mind-blowing because an Anglican 19th century clergyman has something to say on April 23rd of 2023 to a Southern Baptist congregation in Northwest Arkansas. So if that's not trippy, I don't know what is, okay? So from the outset, I want to say that this is really a preview uh, of J.C. Ryle, so I'm not going to be diving into the weeds of every ministerial position uh, in the Church of England. I'm not going to be diving into every single tenet of Anglican theology And this is not our time to provide an exhaustive understanding of who J.C. Ryle is. And so what I will say, if you have any questions in regards to those areas, uh, feel free to send me an email or shoot me a text, and I'm happy to answer any questions uh, that you may have in regards to those areas that do kind of make up the framework of who J.C. Ryle is. Okay, so let's remember and let's imitate this tender, pastorally tender, in-your-face, imperfect, unashamedly evangelical man, J.C. Ryle, this morning. So let's pray. God, we understand that imitation is not worship. We're not gathered here this morning in this hour to worship J.C. Ryle, but we do want to just take a step back, and as we consider the life and ministry and legacy of J.C. Ryle, um, we just want to imitate that which is Uh, faithful according to your word. God, when we look into the life and ministry of Ryle, we pray that we would behold your glory and we would behold your faithfulness in the life of a brother in the 19th century. Uh, God, as we consider uh, his way of life, as we consider the outcome uh, of his faith, all of that which is good, we pray that we would praise you for uh, this this brother's life. And um, thank you for the impact that he's had on numerous people in our congregation here at UBC. And even considering the, the, the practical applications of his life, God, we pray that we would take that to heart and we would find great comfort in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I'm just curious, how many of you have read about J.C. Ryle, just the person, whether it was an article or a book, just a show of hands? Okay, we got a few, okay. And how many of you have read something by J.C. Ryle before? Okay, all right. All right, so would anyone, before we get started this morning, like to briefly share um, how J.C. Ryle, maybe as a person or the things that he's written, how that's impacted your walk with Jesus briefly? Maybe one person. Okay, not much of an impact. Uh, anyways, goodness. Jacob, I'm going to get you a mic. I know you got the voice of Whitfield, brother, but I'm going to give you this mic. Um, yeah, I was going to say that I appreciate um, at the beginning of his book, Holiness, um, he's just a very charitable thinker. I mean, there's a lot of contention in the Church of England uh, mm-hmm. at this time. I think just uh, been edified by, even though he has very strong doctrinal commitments, uh, just the way he works through his thoughts. It's very charitable and very encouraging to think about doing that in our own day and age. So that's one way I think he's helped build me up as a thinker, as a lover of the Lord. So Praise God. If you don't mind, will you hold on to that mic for later? I have a feeling you're going to need it, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, so John Charles uh, Ryle was born May 10th of 1816 near Macclesfield in the county of Cheshire, England. Unlike his grandparents, who were Christians, and here's what's so interesting about John Ryle's grandparents, uh, not only were they Christians, but they were drastically impacted by the life and ministry of John Wesley. In fact, 
There's actually a story in which on the, I think, the, the front doorsteps, if you will, of J.C. Ryle's grandfather, John Wesley, actually preached on those steps. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. But unlike his grandparents, who were believers in Christ, J.C. Ryle's parents were nominal members of the Church of England. They weren't committed members to a local church. They didn't really love the things of the gospel. Um, they were unregenerate. Uh, family worship wasn't prevalent in their home. J.C. Ryle and his, and his siblings were never catechized. And so they were nominal in their faith. In other words, J.C. Ryle's parents, their affections in life, they weren't captured by the person and work of Jesus. They weren't walking with him. Instead, Ryle's parents were enamored with worldly success and fleeting pleasures in Victorian England as members of high-class society. So this banking family, J.C. Ryle's parents, they had it all from the world's perspective. So if we fast forward to an eight-year-old J.C. Ryle, we actually find a young man who was sent to a boarding school for three years. And after that three-year period, really a month following three years, Ryle was sent, uh, was sent to Eton, which was actually a cream of the crop preparatory school, okay, which was founded in 1440. Now, the young J.C. Ryle, he stayed at that preparatory school for almost seven years until he was the age of 18. And in October of 1834, he entered Christ Church, Oxford, where he stayed exactly three years until he was the age of 21. There, Ryle received a prestigious scholarship, the Craven University Scholarship, and he was actually found to be an incredibly academically bright young man. All right, he was a sharp guy. But we all know this. You can be bright academically and be lost spiritually. All right? I'm going to say it one more time. You can be bright academically and be lost spiritually. And therefore, from God's perspective, the only perspective that matters, not wise. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 9.10 gets to the heart of this when he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So at this point in J.C. Ryle's life, this wasn't true of him. So at the age of 21... Ryle actually noted this. Listen carefully. This is Ryle. I had no true religion at all. I certainly never said my prayers or read a word of my Bible. From the time I was seven to the time I was 21, my father's house was respectable and well-conducted, but there really was not a bit of true religion in it. You see, Ryle, as we'll see later on, desired to pursue a life of politics in English Parliament, but God pursued him for a life of ministry. Three things, all right, this is really important, so if you're note-takers, put this at the, like, the introduction portion of your handout, right, end of 1837 into 1838. So, Three things that we're going to draw from in that period of time, three things at the end of 1837 into 1838 were pivotal moments that the Lord God used to draw J.C. Ryle to himself for salvation. All right, here's the first thing, a severe illness. So first, a severe illness confined J.C. Ryle at 21 to his bed. He notes this, that was the time when I distinctly remember I began to read my Bible and I began to pray. Secondly, a new church opened in the hometown of Macclesfield where the gospel was preached. And it attracted Ryle because Ryle was like a contrarian. In other words, like if the world hated the gospel, particularly his hometown of Macclesfield, if Macclesfield hated the gospel and Macclesfield was like, yo, evangelicals, they're out of their mind, they're absolutely crazy, because he's a contrarian, he's like, yeah, I love this stuff. I want to go listen. In other words, he loved it because everyone else was criticizing it and slicing it away. Ryle notes this, there was no ministry of the gospel at the church we attended. Macclesfield had only two churches, and in neither of them was the gospel preached. And so, in his hometown, here at 21, a new church opened where the Bible was opened, preached, and the full gospel was proclaimed. And so J.C. Ryle concluded this. This is wonderful. These new evangelical preachers were so sneered at and disliked 
that they were probably right. <laughs> Here's just a side note. Evangelical preachers at this time, they were absolutely despised. And so would, as we'll see, J.C. Ryle would also be despised by these very same people because the Church of England was beginning to uh, look more and more like Rome, embracing Roman Catholic practices in terms of ritualism combined with people who were religious skeptics. In other words, they denied key tenets of the Christian faith. Did miracles actually exist? Did Jesus actually rise bodily? And there was also higher critical thinking, a denial of the outright uh, inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture and so if you deny all these things and begin to embrace the total opposite, you're actually denying the marks of biblical Christianity or what I'll use interchangeably as the evangelical faith. And so what we're going to see is that England was looking more like Rome and the world combined. Now, severe illness, right? A new evangelical gospel preaching church opened in Macclesfield. And then thirdly and lastly, Raoul got his hands on some evangelical books, just good books that exalted Jesus and the Word of God. And among that list of books was William Wilberforce's Practical Religion. That was at the top of the list. And if you were here last Sunday, that's what Jeremy unpacked for us was the life, legacy, and ministry of William Wilberforce. And part of that ministry uh, was one of those books. And so God used ordinary means, things that are not attractive from the world's perspective, he used things like J.C. Ryle's sickness that bound him to the bed, a preacher of the gospel, and evangelical books to stir J.C. Ryle's affections for Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Now, there's not an exact date or colorful details in regards to the specifics of J.C. Ryle's conversion. All right, What we know is this, and this is really all that we need to know this morning, church family. The Lord radically saved J.C. Ryle, and that's what matters. Not the details in between. A sovereign God crushed the heart of J.C. Ryle that was opposed to him and gave him a new heart of flesh to trust in him. It's kind of like, really, the silence of John Calvin that he gives in regards to his personal testimony. All John Calvin said about his personal testimony is what we have in the preface to a Latin commentary in the Psalms, which he simply says this. God subdued my heart, this is it, God subdued my heart to docility, which had become hardened against the truth of the gospel. And that's all we know about the testimony of Calvin. Likewise, God subdued the heart of J.C. Ryle, a heart that was hardened towards the Lord since 1837. And so it was during those key moments and during that season, again, end of 1837 into 1838, where, where Ryle notes this. Nothing appeared to me so clear and distinct as my own sinfulness, Christ's preciousness, the value of the Bible, the absolute necessity of coming out of the world, the need of being born again, the enormous folly of the whole doctrine of baptismal regeneration. All these things, I repeat, seemed to flash upon me like a sunbeam in the winter of 1837 and have stuck in my mind from that uh, time down to this. I'll stop here for a sec. If you are in Christ this morning and are following Jesus by faith alone, it does not matter if you don't have a flowing testimony that emotionally captivates people. What matters is if you are in Christ today and if you are in Christ today, something that we share with J.C. Ryle and John Calvin and all of these people in this room, God's people bear the remarkable testimony of God's sovereign grace because it's all about God and his glory. Amen. Ryle continues with this. People may account for such a change as they like. My own belief is that no rational explanation of it can be given but that of the Bible. It is what the Bible calls conversion or regeneration. So just think, if you're interested in unpacking that a little bit more, 1 Peter 1, John chapter 3. Notice this. Before that time, I was dead in sins and on the high road to hell. Way before ACDC popularized it, J.C. Rowell had it going on, didn't he? <laughs> and and, and in a negative direction. So before that time, I was dead in sins and on the high road to hell. And from that time, I have become alive, and I had a hope of heaven. 
and nothing to my mind can account for it but the free, sovereign grace of God. And it was the greatest change and event in my life and has been an influence over the whole of subsequent history. It's beautiful. God had caused J.C. Ryle, like you this morning if you are in Christ, to be born again. He had imparted new life to J.C. Ryle and had given him a new heart that beats for Christ's glory and praise. Church family, don't you see, if we look at what's underlined here as Ryle is recounting his conversion, don't you see the passage that J.C. Ryle has in mind? Think about those words that Ryle just said. I was dead in sins. I have become alive. The free, sovereign grace of God. What passage do you think he's referring to? Shout it out. Ephesians 2. There we go. All right. So go ahead. Uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament. All right. Ephesians chapter 2. And then as your handout specifies, we'll be also looking at verses 8 and 9 in particular. But Ephesians chapter 2. In the Apostle Paul's letter, he's writing to show his readers the comprehensive scope of God's plan of redemption for his bride, common metaphor for the church. God has always been a plan A God, amen? Our God is not a plan B God. He does not fumble uh, the football in the end zone or near the end zone. He's always been a plan A God because his ways are perfect and he is perfect. And so his purposes for his people, they're rooted in eternity past. He's always known what he's doing, what is known as before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. So the first three chapters of Ephesians deal with God's plan of salvation for the Jew and Gentile, and the last three chapters of Ephesians unpacks the so what, if you will. They explain the implications of God's grace uh, for the church and the Christian life. So look at verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 1, right here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So is Paul writing to non-Christians? No. Is he writing to the Roman emperor of his day? No. Is he writing back to his auntie in Tarsus? No. He's writing to a church, a group of Christians assembled together under the preached word in the gospel that was first preached to them back in Acts chapter 19. So if we keep in mind Ryle's statements earlier, I was dead in sins, I have become alive, the free sovereign grace of God, look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So again, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's commenting on their former, not their current, their former way of life, what marked them spiritually before they came to saving faith in Jesus. Paul is saying, church at Ephesus, here's what your past was. You were spiritually bankrupt and unable to please God. You could do worldly good according to worldly standards, but there is no good apart from God, and you could not please him on your own. So let's keep going. And as we keep going, as we go into verse 2, notice that Paul is using the past tense. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So walked, common metaphor for living, following the prince of the power of the air, Father of lies, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen, my non-Christian friend, that is your current spiritual state before this holy God. You are, contrary to what billboards may say in our world, you are a son of disobedience, a daughter of disobedience, following the father of lies down a course that leads straight to eternal hell. But if you're in Christ this morning, praise God and all of his grace and glory. This was you. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Then we come to verse 4. Two of the best words in all of the Bible. But God. 
but God. UBC, that's what we all have in common with J.C. Ryle this morning, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Again, nothing lovely about you and I if we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Like There's nothing lovely innately about us that attracted us to God. It's just his love in Christ being set upon a people from eternity past. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, Paul emphasizing the fact that we just saw in verse 1. He does not want the church at Ephesus to miss this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace. God's unmerited favor. God, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When Nick teaches... Uh, some of, the, some of the lessons in this class, he actually has this, this slide often, Roark Rules of Interpretation. So let me give you one Colby rule of conversion for a second, all right? <laughs> Just one. It's all of God's grace. Every time. Whether it's Ryle, whether it's Luther, whether it's Wilberforce, whether it's me, whether it's Frank Hannon or Stephen or Nick or, or I mean, you name it. It's all of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, look at your handout or in your Bible. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Who do you boast in? As you reflect on your life, as you reflect on conversion, as you reflect on the fruit of conversion, it's all of God. Just as this was foundational to Ryle's conversion, this is true of anyone across history and even you this morning if you belong to King Jesus. My non-Christian friend, this can be true of you this morning if you turn to this God. Do you see presently in this moment that you are dead in your sins and in need of God's grace to make you alive in his son Jesus? What I'm saying is, my non-Christian friend, you don't have to clean yourself up in order to come to God, all right? Right where you are this morning, cry out to this God of grace to be saved and cling to that grace displayed in the sinless life of Jesus, his sacrificial death and the bodily resurrection of Christ. Turn away from your sins and turn in faith to this Jesus. This can be true for you as it's true of many of us this morning. It's all of God's grace. Now, unlike some conversions we read about in church history, Ryle, this is, this is mind-blowing and super interesting to me, um, Ryle didn't initially have the desire to aspire to pastoral ministry. Even at and following conversion, this wasn't in the cards from his standpoint. Now, remember, J.C. Ryle was born into a wealthy family in England. All right, he was an accomplished scholar athlete, specifically on the cricket team. Anybody played cricket in here? I'm looking at Owen. Owen's like, I've caught crickets, anyways. Um, a wealthy family in England. He was an accomplished scholar athlete in the sport of cricket. And J.C. Ryle, he was set to amass a family fortune as he pursued a life of politics in English Parliament. That's what he wanted to do. He didn't even want to be a banker. So a key event an event that we'll get to later changed the course of his ministry, changed the course of his life. He had no desire whatsoever to enter pastoral ministry in the Church of England. In fact, Ryle wrote this, and I find this to be interesting, uh, quote, I became a clergyman because I felt shut up to it and saw no other course of life open to me. Are you let me say it again. It's why I became a clergyman because I felt shut up to it and saw no other course of life open to me. Look, the leaders in this class like you and I are grossly imperfect. There's still Christians who, are, who were waging war against the flesh and who still caved and sinned and otherwise chose unwise practices in their life. Right here, this is one of them. Okay, remember, we shouldn't imitate everything with these flawed brothers. Here it is. 
Remember 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, so interchangeably elder or pastor, he desires a noble task. So this morning, we must heed the Apostle Paul's words here because before he gives the qualifications of an elder or an overseer of a local church, such men, when you consider 1 Timothy 3, 1, should desire and pursue this sacred office. So to do otherwise is not only to, get, to disregard Paul's instructions to his young protege in ministry, Timothy, but it's to fundamentally ignore God's word and his wise practices. So Ryle's reason for entering ministry, as we will see, isn't the model if you aspire to the office of pastoral, uh, of pastor, it's not the, the model to follow because it's not biblical. Now, with that being said, though, despite, despite not desiring eldership, God, in his kindness and providence, would still use J.C. Ryle in the Church of England and in evangelicalism as a whole. Now, though he didn't aspire to pastoral ministry at first, J.C. Ryle grew, and he grew to love the church and to meditate on and preach and minister to the church through the Word of God. Now, before we highlight some of the fundamental marks of J.C. Ryle's life and his ministry and his preaching, uh, anyone have any questions or comments? And I intentionally am reserving like why he said the comment that he did towards the end, because it is just absolutely mind-blowing. But outside of that, does anyone have any questions uh, so far? And again, if any questions come to mind, feel free to email me, shoot me a text. I'm happy to uh, talk about that uh, with you, whether it's, you know, Church of England, what's all of that about in Northwest Arkansas, Anglican theology, or just some things that you read about, uh, you've read about Ryle or, or will read about this week, I'm happy to answer those questions, okay? So, Ryle was born, as a sort of recap, Ryle was born in 1816. He was converted at the end of 1837 into 1838, and he entered ministry and became a clergyman reluctantly in 1841, as we could see based on that quote. Now, from 1841 to his retirement of the, uh, as being the Bishop of Liverpool in 1900, Ryle was a rare jewel in the 19th century in the Church of England. In fact, at his first church, Ryle lasted as long as a Cleveland Browns coach. He, 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 he resigned the church he was pastoring for health reasons. Now, but even in a short stint at his first church, this brother was a shepherding pastoral workhorse. Listen to this. In his first stint for two years at this church, he preached two sermons every Sunday. He taught on Wednesdays and Thursdays. He visited 60 families each week. And even serving the needs of this body of believers because there was an outbreak of scarlet fever. That's a pastor. What a pastor. Mm. Now following this, Ryle would accept the role as rector at Helmingham, which is about 85 miles northeast of London, which was a tiny village. He would serve there, so first stint two years, here 17 years followed by 19 years to be the vicar of Stradbroke, uh, Stradbroke, about 20 miles north of Helmingham. What you really need to know about those areas, they were countryside rural parishes where he served for 36 years, and he was content with that. And at the age of 64, Ryle, when most people during, like, in that age bracket that, that were in ministry when they were considering retirement, the age of 64, Ryle was called, to be, uh, called on to be the first bishop of Liverpool. So in his 36 years of pastoring, the parishes in those 36 years, they're around 300 to 1,300. That's the exact opposite of Liverpool. So rural there, Liverpool, urban, and the amount of people at that time, I can't even imagine how overwhelming that would be for someone 
who was in a rural area. Now he's at an, an older age, as most people consider retirement. That was 700,000 people. That's a culture shock. Here's what's interesting, though. Whether it's 300, 1,300, or 700,000, J.C. Ryle, at the end of the day, was convictionally consistent. He never wavered. Ryle's preaching style was marked by simplicity. And he wrote more than a dozen books and countless tracts. By the way, those books and tracts, like he's the king of tracts, all right? Um, they covered at least a dozen languages, and those books and tracts, they were originally, for the most part, sermons that he had preached. And if anyone in Christendom got 1 Peter 5 right, where Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God among them and to be content with that, not the flock you want 20 years from now or the flock you wish you had, but the flock in front of them. J.C. Ryle was that guy that got 1 Peter 5. In writing and preaching, he was first a pastor. And as he read, he would ask two questions. Two questions. Is it true, number one, and number two, what effect will this have on ordinary people? He wanted to speak like the people. He wanted to smell like the sheep. I think this is something all aspiring and current pastors can learn from and congregations should yearn for. Listen to this. This is on the simplicity of preaching. All the simplicity in the world can do no good unless you preach the simple gospel of Jesus Christ so fully and clearly that everybody can understand it. If Christ crucified has not his rightful place in your sermons and sin is not exposed as it should be and your people are not plainly told what they ought to believe and be and do, your preaching is of no use. Ryle's love for the gospel, the scriptures, sanctification, it marked his entire life. Listen to how one author describes Ryle's preaching style. This is actually from J.I. Packer, um, um, where he gives kind of like a brief biographical sketch on Ryle, and then um, the second part of the book is on holiness, which was written by Ryle. So listen to how J.I. Packer describes Ryle's preaching style. Quote, brisk, blunt, a blunt style, pungent, persuasive, made up of short, abrupt, in-your-face sentences, rarely with, one, with more than one subordinate clause, all regularly piled together to produce cumulative and drumbeat effects. It was a personal, conversational style, aiming to make the hearer or reader feel individually addressed and involving much of the first-person singular pronoun. Now, this style of Ryle and his biblical depth was evident to all in his preaching, and especially books that we'll get to later, like Thoughts for Young Men and Holiness. So I thought it would be fitting, uh, before we consider the outcome of Ryle's way of life, just to share with you an appetizer of what to expect. If you've never read J.C. Ryle, let me first encourage you to read J.C. Ryle, and then secondly, this is what you can expect in regards to that punchy, biblically saturated style of J.C. Ryle. And so we'll just read a few of these. I grant you, true repentance is never too late. But I warn you at the same time, late repentance is seldom true. I grant you, one penitent thief was converted in his last hours. Think about that thief beside Jesus, the cross. So I grant you, one penitent thief was converted in his last hours that no man might despair. But I warn you, only one was converted that no man might presume. Sanctification. Again, Ryle wrote an entire book on sanctification or holiness, which, by the way, is what he's most popularly known for now. But sanctification, in the last place, is absolutely necessary in order to train and prepare us for heaven. Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. 
It's the cost of being a real Christian. This is something else. It does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, and a race to run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. And this is probably one of my favorite quotes on assurance from Ryle. The strong consolation which assurance can give in the hour of death is a point of great importance. We may depend on it. We shall never think assurance so precious as when our turn comes to die. In that awful hour, there are few believers who do not find out the value and privilege of a, quote, an assured hope. Whatever they may have thought about it during their lives, the river of death is a cold stream. And we have to cross it alone. No earthly friend can help us. The last enemy, the king of terrors, is a strong foe. When our souls are departing, there is no cordial like the strong wine of assurance. Trust me, if you start reading Ryle, never read him before, this is what to expect, the entire book being highlighted. Considering the outcome of their way of life, Ryle's way of life. So uh, some of this is a little bit of a recap, but John Charles Ryle was born May 10th of 1816 near Macclesfield in the county of Cheshire, England. His parents, unlike his grandparents, were nominal members of the Church of England and had no desire or interest for the Christian faith. After graduating with honors from Christ Church at Oxford at the age of 21, Ryle endured and was bedridden with, a, with an illness. It was there where he began to study God's Word and read evangelical books, such as Wilberforce's Practical View of Christianity. As he was bedridden, as he was thinking through these things, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 9, came to life in Ryle's life as the Lord caused J.C. Ryle to be born again. Ryle was ordained in the ministry at 1840, in 1841, and his life, note this, his life was marked by tragedy and loss and suffering. His life was marked by those things. What consisted of those things is a family, specifically his father's bankruptcy. But by the way, that's something he could not get over until his death. So father's bankruptcy, J.C. Ryle outlived all three of his deceased wives. And if he wasn't preaching and teaching and ministering to these rural parishes, he was being a father to all of these children. And so bankruptcy, three deceased wives, and all but one child would follow Jesus. So despite suffering, tragedy, and loss, Ryle flourished not only as a dad, like, if you actually, like, recount the things that Ryle's kids, even unconverted kids say, said, their unconversion wasn't because of J.C. Ryle being a dad. He was a great dad towards his kids. It's because they were just dead in their trespasses and sins and didn't want to follow Jesus. But despite all of that, Ryle flourished not only as a dad, but as a prominent evangelical leader in the Church of England during the 19th century. He died on June 9th, 1900, at the age of 84, and on his gravestone, this is so interesting, there are two verses of Scripture to capture the two aspects of the Christian life that he heralded. Number one, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. And the last verse on that gravestone is this, and then, by grace are ye saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8. Now, a well of application can be drawn from the life and legacy of J.C. Ryle. We could spend hours on hours, days on days, weeks on weeks talking about the specific application. But there are two ways, I think, that we can imitate J.C. Ryle, his faith in particular, this morning. And the first way is really resting and anchoring your soul in this truth. And it's this, God uses suffering and loss for the spiritual good of his people. God uses suffering and loss for the spiritual good of his people. 
Remember when Ryle wrote earlier in your handout, which is letter C under the heading of remembering your leaders, he wrote this, I became a clergyman because I felt shut up to it. Well, this is why. J.C. Ryle's dad owned two banks, and essentially one of the banks was poorly supervised by the partners and left in the hands of an unwise manager who had a penchant for making bad loans and even worse investments. So the news of the bank's bad debts reached London, and Ryle's dad's banking associates stopped payment and refused to accept loans from his banks. So as you would expect, panic ensued, bankruptcy happened, financial ruin occurred. Ryle's inheritance, again, he's the eldest son, his inheritance, everything that he was about to receive as he was pursuing a life of politics, or at least that was his desire to pursue politics in English parliament, that's gone. All right, it took years, I think I was talking about this with Jacob Killian, it took years on years on years to pay that debt off with his dad. All right, this was not an issue of J.C. Ryle. He just, being a good son, took on the responsibility of helping pay his dad's debts. So this was a huge deal, though, in Victorian England, and here's why. Bankruptcy, according to the perspective of England, bankruptcy was a criminal offense in Victorian England, and those who filed bankruptcy were regarded as cheapskates and crooks. And along with that, it brought shame and disgrace on family and friends, as well as the offender himself. And this happened in the summer of 1841. What do we already know? J.C. Riles converted. He's regenerate. He's regenerate. He's walking with Jesus. He's born again. In fact, this, this event was, this key event in his life was so crucial that he said, if I wasn't a Christian, I likely would have committed suicide because of this event. Though this was hard and a thorn in Ryle's side throughout his entire life, to his death, Ryle, like Naomi in the book of Ruth, in the end, remember Naomi? Lost her husband, lost her sons, left with right, a Gentile daughter-in-law. She was in perpetual widowhood. She had no one to financially provide for her. And even the women are looking like, whoa, is, is this Naomi? She says, hey, call me Mara. The Lord's dealt bitterly with me. She didn't understand all the things that were happening. And, and even when she came to grips with all these details, she was like, God, your providence, it, it isn't kind, it's bitter. But what do we know in the book of Ruth? Right? This daughter-in-law right, would marry Boaz. Naomi would be taken care of. And through this line would come King David and then the king of all kings, Jesus. Ryle, like Naomi in the book of Ruth, in the end saw God's kind providence working for his good. Ryle wrote this. This is Ryle taking a moral and spiritual view of it, it meaning the bankruptcy. I have not the least doubt it was all for the best. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It was, it, if my father's affairs had prospered and I had never been ruined, my life, of course, would have been a very different one. I should probably have gone into Parliament very soon, and it is impossible to say what the effect of this might have been upon my soul. I should have formed different connections and moved in an entirely different circle. I should have never been a clergyman, never have preached a sermon, written a tract or a book. Perhaps I might not have been as useful and might have been made a shipwreck in spiritual things. Suffering and loss aren't easy but they're not meaningless. Christian, your affliction, whatever that may be, suffering and loss is meant for your spiritual good and to bring you closer to Jesus. It's meant to bring you closer to Jesus and his sufferings and to anchor your heart in the promises of God, knowing that this God will one day wipe every tear from your eye. No doubt, Ryle was acquainted with grief and suffering losing three wives, all but one child being saved, losing an inheritance, and being criticized left and right until the end of his ministry by opponents of the gospel. Yet he knew this was for his good. My Christian friend, is that how you view your sufferings and loss today? One could say this, without bankruptcy, we get no Bishop Ryle. Last Lastly, and our brother Jacob Moore will unpack this a little bit for us, but holiness 
is essential to the Christian life. Holiness is essential to the Christian life. Now, again, we haven't spent the entire hour unpacking Anglican theology or ecclesiology or diving deep into the sermons and works of Raoul or talking even about the important reforms that he made uh, at his old age and being the first bishop of Liverpool. But we, we would be remiss this morning if we didn't spend a brief moment talking about Raoul's constant emphasis on holiness in the Christian life. We often, I think, overthink and focus on the tiny details and weeds when asking the question, what is God's will for my life? What's God's will for your life? For such a question that we make complex, the Bible is quite clear what God's will is for every Christian, whether it's J.C. Ryle or you this morning. Listen to these two verses in 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God. It's pretty clear. Your sanctification. Goes on a few verses later, 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Holiness among the Church of England is what J.C. Ryle called for during his day. It was a non negotiable. He wasn't arguing for sinless perfectionism, but for believers, especially young men and clergymen, to kill, not cage sin, and work their salvation out with fear and trembling, being Christians of worthy imitation. So this is how I want to conclude our time before, we, uh, before I ask a couple of brothers to come up. I really, instead of me speaking, I just want J.C. Ryle to speak to us this morning. Listen to his words. I appeal solemnly to everyone who reads these pages. How should we ever be at home and happy in heaven if we die unholy? Death works no change. The grave makes no alteration. Each will rise again with the same character in which he breathed his last. Where will our place be if we are strangers to holiness now? Holiness is essential to the Christian life, beloved. And if it's optional to you now, you are being conformed to something or someone other than Jesus. All right. So there are two books. Uh, usually, so it's the reason why I didn't give it out. Uh, I just wanted two brothers to speak to this. Um, there are two books we normally have on our UBC bookstall. That's a small book called Thoughts for Young Men and a little bit of a bigger book, and that's called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And so I'm going to ask our brother, uh, Robbie Bader, if you will, to uh, come up and let me see. Jacob, will you get Robbie that mic? Um, Robbie, so you what, a few months ago, went to a junior high student's birthday party, and you gave that, uh, that young man one of these books. Could you just tell us, what, like, briefly, what's the book about, how it's made an impact for you and your walk with Jesus, and why people should read it? And then we're going to give out two copies. I'm going to have Robbie give it out, two copies to someone a little bit seasoned in the faith, and if you make the promise of, I'm going to walk through this with a young man or someone who's young in the faith. All right. It's right here. Well, I wrote down a bunch of notes, Colby, and then w with some quotes, but you already shared all of them. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. The, uh, I've, I don't think I've ever been asked to do a book review. I'm the last guy in the entire room that would be asked to, uh, to do a book review. But here we go. So Owen and I actually went through this book together when you, he was like 12 or 13. And we were meeting with some young guys. We had been for several years. And this was one of the books that we had uh, been going through along with the Bible. The, uh, and I, I think, I think uh, what I want to share is not really anything from my notes, but something that just happened in the last 24 hours that helped me understand the importance of this book, I think, and uh, uh, sort of maybe in the walk with, uh, with Owen through the last years. And th that is this. Last, last night, we live on a farm, and last night, about like 8.30, I get a frantic phone call. From, uh, from my uncle who had gotten a phone call from our farmhand that there was a calf that was just born that day or the day before and was about to die. So the calf had been dropped off at the barn behind the house. My uncle was rushing to Orchlands to get colostrum. You ever heard of this? It has nothing to do particularly with the book, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you. The, uh, so colostrum, it, it is what a, a, cow, a calf has to have 
within like the first hours. Maybe you, you may have a day uh, for, for the calf to get to colostrum for it to have a chance to survive. So they rushed to colostrum. My uncle was stressed out. If you've ever met him, you, you know that, that like he didn't like things that aren't planned. But they got there right before it closed, come back. And so we're about to try to give this calf colostrum. So I, I go out there, and this is a little bitty calf. It's got buck teeth, which is sort of frightening. The, uh, um, and so we've got this bottle, this giant bottle. We've mixed the colostrum up, and I get the calf between my legs, holding the calf down. And I am, I mean, I've, you know, we, this isn't the first time we've done this. So you've got to work with the calf, and you've sort of got to rub its neck, and you get it, you know, you, you teach it how to suck this bottle. So I start working with this calf, and it's not taking the bottle. I work for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and I'm about ready to give up, frankly, because it's bedtime. The, uh, uh, the calf is an idiot. Um, <laughs> it, it's sticking its tongue out the side. I mean, I, it's got a lot of problems. I told uncle, my uncle that I think the calf is, has, has some mental issues. The, uh, however, um, we worked on it for an hour and a half. We're sitting here trying to convince this calf. And so we're trying to get like two quarts down the calf of this colostrum. And in an hour and a half, we got maybe two ounces. And so, so finally, uh, Uncle Billy would have worked all night long. And finally, I was like, okay, look, we're, I'm going to get a tube in the morning. And if the thing is still alive in the morning, I, I'm, we're going to stick a tube down its neck and we're going to force feed this calf. The... Uh, which is not fun to do, but what we were doing the whole time is talking to the calf, trying to help him understand, if you don't drink this, you're going to die. Like, literally, you have 24 hours or less, and you're going to die. The, uh, and the calf just, you know, couldn't get it through a sick skull, so we kept working with the calf and working with the calf, spoon-feeding the calf. So as I, as I thought back through this book, and I made, made some notes in the last day or two, the... Uh, um, this book is really short and really pointed and super blunt. And he, he writes things related to young men um, like, like this. Let us ask the parents of any in the county throughout the land and see what they would say generally when talking about young men. Who in their families give them the most pain and trouble? Who need the most watchfulness and most often provoke and disappoint them? Who are the first to be led away from what is right, and the last to remember cautions and good advice. Who are the most difficult to keep in order and in limits? Who most frequently break out into open sin, disgrace the name they bear, make their friends unhappy, embitter the older relatives, and cause them to die with sorrow in their heart? Depend on it. The answer will generally be young men. Let us ask the judges and police officers and note what they will reply, who goes into the nightclubs and the bars most often, who make us who make up the street gangs, who are most often arrested for drunkenness, disturbing the peace, fighting, stealing, assaults, and the like, who fill the jails and penitentiaries and detention homes, who are the class which requires the most incessant watching and looking after, depend on it. The answer will be from every group the same, young men. Let, turn to the upper class and note the report we will get from them. And one family says their sons are always wasting time, wasting their health, wasting their money. They're in the self-pursuit of pleasure. And in another, the sons will follow no profession and fritter away the most precious years of their life. They make wrong connections. They're, they gamble. They get into debt. They associate with bad companions. They keep their friends in constant fever of anxiety. Note that rank and title and wealth and education do not prevent these things. Ancient fathers and heartbroken mothers and sorrowing sisters could tell sad stories about them if the truth were known. Many a family with everything in this world that this world can give, numbers among its relatives, some name that is never named or only named with regret and shame. It's a son, a brother, a cousin, a nephew who will have his own way and is a grief to all who know him. Mm. So R.C. Ryle pleads with young men to repent and believe, to heed the truths of the scripture. And for me, the father of a young man, I thought I was, you know, uh, taking through this book really helped me uh, understand like it's not just my son and how important it is for my son 
and for me to be boldly and blatantly and constantly remembering the urgency of the gospel, how short life really is. Um, he, he says, the path of the worldly man grows darker and darker every year that he lives. The path of the Christian is as a shining light, brighter and brighter to the end. Yeah. R.C. Ryle pleads for our sons, for the young men in, in this book. And I think it's a great reminder for us uh, to be pleading for our sons, for the young men in our life, for those who we uh, come in contact with and who are around as ambassadors for Christ. Like, make an appeal constantly for these young men as he's doing in this book. So it was encouraging for me. It's a constant reminder that uh, life is a vapor, and I think young men are often the ones who are quickest to, to forget that or not realize it. So it's super helpful, very short. It's easy to read. It's blunt. I think it's helpful to, to everyone, particularly men. Amen. The calf is still alive, too fed this morning. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll do everything we can to, to pump in the, the uh, nutrients that it needs. And fortunately, I, as I told Uncle Billy last night, like, we'll do all we can, and it's up to the Lord whether or not he survives. So, <laughs> Thank you, brother. All right, I'm uh, going to give these two to one seasoned saint that is going to commit and promise, hey, I'm going to walk through this with a faith, or even your own son. Uh, who would be interested in having these two copies with that commitment in mind? All right, Mr. Pond. Will you give that to Gabriel? Okay, right Thanks, now. brother. All right, and then we're going to conclude our time with our brother Jacob Moore talking about J.C. Ryle's holiness and how that's made an impact on his own life, what it's about, why you should read it, and then we'll conclude with a doxology. Here you go, brother. Right. Uh, looks like Colby's got a copy here. Uh, and I have touched a cow one time before, but um, don't have anything more to say about that than that. Um, <clears throat> anyway, it was fun. Uh, so holiness, it's a great, uh, so I mean, Colby hit a lot of, on a lot of the themes that are already in here, talked a lot about the nominalism that was present in the Church of England, and that's really one of his great fights in this book is, um, you know, there's these tent meetings going on, there's a lot of ritualism going on, and so there's a lot of prayer, a lot of singing that happens publicly, but he believes that if Christianity, if Christ is not only come, but is still coming through his spirit into the world continuously, that this should produce better fathers, mothers, sons, um, in our private lives, in our homes, uh, in our work. And so is absolutely committed to wanting to see that um, borne out in the lives of believers. Like you can think about Matthew 5, you know, let your good works be seen before men that they might give glory to your Father in heaven. Um, that's really kind of one verse that could sum up some of the heartbeat of this book. Um, one thing, uh, one way that it is particularly helpful, well, maybe a couple ways. Uh, one... Um, particularly in my own life, I was really benefited. Colby hit on uh, the question. There was a quote about, you know, few people have wondered if they would enjoy heaven when they got there. Um, I remember the first time I read it, that was a really powerful section. You know, he, he says, if you don't love to talk about the things of the Lord, if you don't love to sing the Lord's praises, if you don't love the things the Lord loves, what are you going to do when you try to talk to David, when you mm -hmm. try to talk to Paul? Right. When you try to talk to J.C. Ryle, uh, you're going to be so insufferably bored. Uh, he starts to talk about, like, the air will be a kind of air that you can't even breathe. And he actually ends up saying that if you were allowed into heaven without holiness, your request from the Lord eventually would be to ask to be let out, um, mm. which is just really was very convicting. And so one of the ways that helped me is to realize the Lord's helping through holiness to prepare me for himself, to enjoy him. And I never thought about holiness quite that way. And it... One of the things that it did for me was it moved holiness. It's still very much a thing to be sought after, but all of a sudden I felt like I could see how this could still be an easy and light yoke from Christ. Mm -hmm. And that was really important. It is a yoke. Holiness is essential to the Christian life, and yet it's an easy and it's a light yoke, and all who come to Christ can find it, and they can find rest for their souls as they find holiness springing up in them. Um, you'll also maybe be benefited. The, the other thing that I'll mention about it is at the end of each chapter, he does a good job just walking through some of the different kind of situations, you know, you could find yourself in. So you may suffer uh, in a certain doctrinal area because of maybe your circumstances or your different dispositions. So if you, you know, are kind of wondering, how do I figure out why I struggle to think about sin rightly or the Christian life and the fight that it requires? He'll go through and like list out like eight or nine different Kind of here's some different things that people experience, and like a good doctor administers different medicines to those different kind of situations. So I think you'd find a lot of help just even figuring out where you are in relating to some of these different doctrinal points. So 
Um, highly recommend it. It's a great book to read through. All right. Would thank you, brother. Would anyone be benefited? Jack. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Thank you, brother. All right. Before we go into the doxology, I'm going to close this in prayer. God, thank you for uh, J.C. Ryle. Uh, thank you for his faithfulness and commitment to the gospel and writing these things. God, thank you for the impact that he's had on brothers like Robbie and Jacob and Owen. And God, as we consider thoughts for young men, as we consider holiness, as we consider the life and ministry of Ryle, Lord, we pray that we would remember your faithfulness displayed in his life and how the same God that was at work in J.C. Ryle's life, who is the same today, uh, yesterday, and forever, God, is that same God uh, today. And so, Lord, we give you praise for all of the good work that you do for the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.